Again, thank you all for being here and just loving on us. Your presence just blesses us. Um, we, we are going to be talking about missions um, tonight in the Word. And my hope is, um, you know, one of the, the fun parts of being able to travel around is I love to, to open up God's Word and just to see how God has designed a local church to engage in the, the mission of God. And my hope is that it's liberating because I know a lot of times when we see mission slides and we see these people that we've never met, we think, man, I should be doing more. Or maybe some of you have maybe felt like, maybe I feel like I should have been doing something like going. Or I feel like I could be, or I'm just, a, I'm just a nobody, or I'm just this, or I'm just that. But it is really amazing that when you look in the scriptures and you see the Great Commission, God doesn't just call individuals to go. God, he, Jesus called his church to go. And what we'll see from the word of God is that God has called his body to function together for the sake of the Great Commission. And I truly think that once we understand that and once we understand clearly how the church is to engage in the Great Commission, I pray that it could be very liberating to us that we'll see you don't have to be a rich person to be used by the Lord in missions. You don't have to be a person who goes. We're going to talk about tonight from the Word that not everybody is called to be a missionary. It's a famous saying, but it's completely wrong that you're either... I love... I read Charles Spurgeon every day. But he's famous for saying you're either a missionary or you're an imposter. Now, I know what he meant by that. He meant that you're either shared the gospel and, and are passionate about Jesus or you're an imposter. But sometimes we take that today and we think... I'm I'm supposed to be doing something, but I don't know what or how. You're like, I'm just, I got health problems. I got all these issues going on in my life. I don't make a lot of money to give. Or, and let me just say, I'm speaking objectively now. Honestly, I would get more joy about this church um, getting fired up and liberated by how they can serve the Lord than about anything that we talked about just earlier. Honestly, so this is a time for me to be like, yep, that's the ministry we're doing. Now let's step aside and talk about how this church, how we as God's people are called by God to engage and let's see how. Um, Anyway, so we'll see from the word of God. You don't have to be a smart person. You don't have to have this incredible, deep theological mind to be used by the Lord in the Great Commission. You don't have to be young and you don't have to be old. You don't have to be the wisest bunch, the sharpest tool in the shed, you name it. We just have to know what God's called us to do. And we have to know what role we're to play. And we're just to be faithful with what we got. We need to step away from American thinking and just think that it has to be a a certain amount for it to be effective. Or have this certain amount of numbers to be effective and just throw away that whole train of thinking. And just think, God, I just need to to do what the Bible says and be faithful with what I got. And what we'll see in the ages to come is how God was able to use it. Because when one member is not doing its role, doing its part, the whole body suffers. So those who go are not more important than those who stay. Yes, 
I do believe that we should hold up those who go and honor them and pray for them and see missionary work, especially in the the most dangerous and unreached areas in the world, highly value that. But not value that as more effective for the kingdom of God than what those who do for the kingdom of God, for the nations who stay. Because what we'll see that God has designed that those who that those who partner in the work are co-heirs, are co-equals in it, are co-inheritance. They have a co-inheritance together to share in the fruits. So my hope this this evening is just to to open God's word and just to see how we as one body work together for the task. Um, one, I don't even know who said this. I think it was John Stott. He says it will take a ho- the whole church to bring a whole Christ to the whole world. It will literally take the body of Christ working together. Um, and so think of it like this. Think of, think of there being a people who, who are locked up in a prison. They're bound up in shackles. Men, women, and children, societies, civilizations, cultures, all bound up in a prison and in chains. And in this prison, there's only gloom and despair and death and no way out. That there's oppression to the worst degree with no way out. But that God has given us the key. And it's the only key. The only key that unlocks the door. And... The key actually fits. It's the right key. It works. And our job is to turn the key. And what we'll see is that the church, when the body works together, turns the key together. That those who go turn the key, and those who stay but do what God's called them to do for the sake of the Great Commission are turning the key too. It takes it all. So think about these people. So the first half of what I really want to talk about is to the title is like why we can't forget about them. How the church engages the unreached with the gospel. So the first half is for just to us to put our, 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 um, our feet in their shoes and to feel the weight of the burden. Because how tragic would it be if there was a people locked in this prison with death and despair. And there was a people who had the key. But live their lives as if nothing existed. As if, as if these people didn't even exist. Imagine being those people locked in those prisons. Knowing that no money, no training, no prayers are being targeted towards them being unlocked. God has equipped us with everything we need to go and unlock the key. Everything we need. Jesus says all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, in light of that reality, go and know this, that I'm with you always. Even to the end of the age. God has given the keys to the church to go and set prisoners free. He's given us the word of God, the gospel, which is the key. And he has given us the Holy Spirit to empower us. And he's given us the church of God, the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ to carry one another's burdens and to work together corporately to see the gospel advance. So if you'll open up with me the book of Romans, um, and we're going to actually kind of do somewhat of a survey through that book.
And so my goal is twofold. My goal is twofold. One is to feel the weight, to, to, to let the Bible ask, answer the question, why we can't forget about these people. It's good to have reminders. Some of these things we talk about, perhaps all of it will be nothing new to you. But I am a firm believer that there are some topics that are so important to the Christian life and to the church life that we need to hear them multiple times a year to be refreshed on. Things like missions, things like prayer, things like parenting, things like marriage, giving, all of these things need to be constantly before us because we're, t- we're prone to stay in our own world, to, to just stay within these walls. But then my goal, secondly, is again to liberate us, to show us how. So if you'll open up with me. Um, to the book of Romans, we're going to ask that question, why we cannot forget about the unreached, and then we're going to talk about, from the book of Romans, how. So first the why, then the how. So actually, Romans chapter 1, so the, the, the verses might be up there, um, but we're going to be walking in order through the book, so if you want to pull your Bible out, that's fine. Um, but let's just go to Romans chapter 1, starting in verses 1 through 6, and let's... See, right off the very first verses of Romans, the greatest letter ever written, and see who the gospel was designed by God to be for. And in that, we'll see the intention, the very heart of God. Romans chapter 1, 1 through 6 says, Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace, we've received grace and apostleship for this reason, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all nations. Romans 1, 13-15 I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as the, among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for everyone, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's amazing. In the book of Romans, you have the greatest theological masterpiece of the gospel in Scripture. But it's amazing. You also see some of the clearest teachings on missiology, on missions. It's amazing. You can never separate those two. Because the gospel is the power of God of salvation for all nations. And that the whole purpose of the gospel, the whole purpose of Christ's coming was to bring a people for himself from all tribes, tongues, and nations. So God is the missionary God. We're not the missionaries. God is the missionary. And his purpose from before the foundation of the world was, was to have for His Son around His throne a people from all tribe and tongues and nations worshiping Him. And we see 
that in the book of Revelation, the, mi- the mission is accomplished. We see a people worshiping Christ. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, a people from all tribes. Yet, we see the sovereign God, a sovereign, big global plan being worked out in real time through His church. God is completely sovereign in salvation. But God is a God of means, and the means by which God uses to save His people from all tribes is His church fulfilling the Great Commission in the power of the Holy Spirit, walking in obedience to the Word of God. So although God is sovereign in salvation, I believe that firmly to the core. Disobedience is truly disobedience, and there is true consequences when we don't obey God. The Dark Ages is called the Dark Ages for a reason. Because the word of God was hidden from the people. There wasn't much happening. Until the word of God and the gospel got brought back. God intended for the gospel to be for everyone. For all nations, tribes and tongues of the world. Romans also teaches us that not only is the gospel intended for all people groups of the world, but salvation is free and available to anyone, anywhere from those peoples who would believe it. So that means it's effectual and actually completing its purpose. The key opens the door. Romans three twenty one through 23 says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. I love the usage of the word all in the book of Romans. For all, anyone, anywhere, the righteousness of God is revealed to who anyone who would believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. I love the song that Pastor Jeremy chose. Living He loved me, dying He saved me. That the, the Son of God would leave heaven with his motive of being love to save us. And that that's not just for the church in general. It's for us to be received by faith. God loves real people, even when they were enemies. The gospel is for all and saves all who would believe it. Whether they're Jew, Gentile, Greek, rich, poor, you name it. Anyone. Romans 10, 11 through 12 says, For Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is an open door in heaven saying, Come, all who would come and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I was reading Charles Spurgeon the other day, and he was talking about the great psalm, the ascension psalm, where it's as if all of heaven is saying, Who is this King of glory? Who is this King of glory? I, I just must... Must read it, Psalms 24. 
which says, lift up your gates, lift up your heads and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Those ancient doors of heaven, the resurrected Christ, calling on those gates to be opened. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your gates. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, the King of glory. The gates of heaven are are open wide. And they haven't been shut since. They're open for all nations and for anyone who would come through the door, through the Lord Jesus Christ. So the gospel is intended for all nations and everyone who believes it will be saved. So point number one, we cannot forget about the lost nations of the world because the gospel is for all nations and salvation is available to anyone who believes. All right, Romans continues on to teach us. Why we can't forget about the nations. It says, it teaches us that mankind's greatest need in the world is the gospel. Without Christ, all men and everywhere, all nations, all individuals are under the wrath of God. Romans 1.18 says, again the usage of the word all, some of the most dreadful passages in scripture. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's true for us, even. Not just the Peruvians, not just the Indians, not just the Africans. Whether you were born in church your whole life, if you are not in Christ, you are under the wrath of God. Romans 2, 5, 2, 5 through 11. But because of your hard heart and your impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by practice and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also for the Greek. That's why we can't forget about them. If something worse than a prison, worse than poverty, worse than hardship, worse than famine, and it's the wrath of God that awaits them. But praise God that He's called us and equipped us, even us in this room, to do something about it. God's not unjust and condemning the wicked. Romans is very clear about that. Don't hear me say, oh, these poor, innocent people, who will go to them? No, Romans says there's no such thing as these poor, innocent people. That even what's revelation of God they do know, they've rejected God. And even the little bit of knowledge of God that they have in their conscience, they reject and worship idols. People don't go to hell Because they've never heard the gospel. People go to hell because they're sinners. We cannot forget about the lost nations of the world. This is point number two. Because without Christ, they are under the wrath of God. Romans goes on to teach us in Romans 3, 21 through 23. That man has a problem. 
but that God's given a solution. And there's only one. One solution. Romans three twenty one through 23. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Jesus Christ, the one that God risen up, who on that tree was the propitiation. Jesus received the full wrath upon himself. When Jesus was on the cross, he suffered enough to bear the wrath of God so that sinners could be pardoned. Jesus is the great propitiation, the great sacrifice. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one lifted up and to all who would look to Him and to, would believe upon Him would be saved. Paul does something pretty amazing through 1 through 3. He just, what Paul does in the first part of Romans is he's chopping down every tree, every arm of the flesh that we would look to to save ourselves. We can never be saved by God until we're willing to surrender, to forsake our sin, but to also forsake our own saviors. Your own righteousness. There's only one Savior. Not your baptism. Not an experience that you had. Not a prayer that you prayed and asked Jesus into your heart one day. It's Christ. Say by faith in Christ. And the beautiful news is that we enter into a realm of grace and peace with God forever. That nothing can ever be taken away. You can never be snatched out. No trial will be too hard to get you out of it. You'll never sin your way out of it because God won't let you. So instead of being under wrath, we're under grace and peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We cannot forget the lost nations of the world because Christ is the only solution to their greatest problem. So Christ, the gospel, is the key. And the only key. So there's a logic going here. Okay. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Only Christ is the solution. And that the gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes. But there's a logic to that that Paul brings out. You have to actually hear the gospel. And be saved. Romans teaches us. That people have to hear the gospel in order to be saved. I'm sorry, I don't buy any of, of these dreams that talk about Muslims getting saved because they had a dream of a man in white. They may have had that dream and it may have been of the Lord, but God is not going to save them unless they repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus has revealed himself in a message to be believed. Romans 10, 13 through 14. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? It's the logic. There's a need. There are people who can only be saved by Jesus. The church is called to go to them and proclaim this message we have they have the greatest need we have the greatest task and that task is to bring them the gospel 
Yes, we are called to love people. We are called to take care of them. We are called to fight for justice. But at the end of the day, the only thing that will unlock those doors is the preaching of Christ Jesus. So much has gone out from America of twisting this message. We as a church have got to preserve the word of God. We've got to preserve the purity of the gospel. So point number four, we cannot forget about the lost nations of the world because they will not be saved unless we take the gospel to them. Now, you think, okay, now what do I do? Let's feel the weight of that a little bit. The weight of the responsibility. Man, the wrath of God is dreadful. The need is great. The solution is amazing. But who am I? Who am I? Lord, you know I don't have this. I don't have the. I'm like, maybe you're thinking like, God, I'm just trying to keep my head above water. Like, I know I need to care about these people. I know I need to do something about it. I don't know what or how or why. And that's okay. You know, God cares about your marriage. He cares about your ministry in the church. Look, your ministry in this church or whatever church you came from is extremely important. God has called each and every one of you guys to be a member, a minister in the body of Christ. Like your ministry to one another, I do not know where I would be unless it wasn't for the church. I'm not saying that lightly. I've had some dark times. I've had some dark seasons. I've had trials. But God uses people. You've got to carry one another's burdens. You've got to be there for each other. You've got to pray for each other. You've got to serve each other. There are 69 one another commands, probably more. Some say there's 52. I'm, I'm throwing out a number. It's 59 or 69. We can't do that just coming to church on Sundays. Going on Wednesday nights. That takes rubbing shoulders. That takes getting to know people. That's your ministry. That's what God has called you to do. That's what makes a church healthy. Solid doctrine is huge, but doctrine that doesn't have application is nothing. That's doctrine not believe and applied. But your role with this church and carrying one another's burdens, praying for one another, ministering to one another is so massive. But even in all of our problems, we can't neglect the call, the charge. And here's why I even bring this up is because these people in the book of Romans are suffering. They're getting thrown to the lions. They're suffering injustice and persecution. Right? Paul himself is taking a hiatus from his missionary journeys and is going to Jerusalem at this time. He's trying to take a love offering that he's gathered from the church to go help the poor and afflicted church that are under war and famine in Jerusalem. But you know what he still says? But hey guys, I'm wanting to come. I'm wanting to come visit you so that you can send me. After when I'm done, I'm going to come visit you Enjoy fellowship for a little while. And then I want you to send me on my way to Spain. Where Christ hasn't been named. 
right? So there, there is God's will is perfect. And although we're suffering and God is with us, it's one step at a time. We're going through whatever in life. We have to be there for one another. But we can't have tunnel vision as a church. And that's where the body comes in. That's where the body comes in. Working together. Okay. So how? How does the church? Okay, Cody, so you're saying you're saying I don't have to be rich. I don't have to be this great preacher teacher. I don't have to be a theologian. I could be poor. I could be the weakest of the smallest clan, the smallest church. Listen, it doesn't matter how big, how small your church is or how mature you are spiritually, how you don't have to be anything great. So we just have to understand what God's equipped us to do and called us to do and just be faithful with what little bit we got. So how does the church advance the kingdom of God? All right, so you'll turn with me to Romans 10. Romans 10, I'm I'm kind of reiterating here, 14 through 15. Point number one, how do we advance the kingdom of God on earth? By going. Some are called to go. They won't hear the gospel unless somebody goes. Paul already said it. How will they call on him whom they have never heard? Do not believe? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? We'll get to that part. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good, the good news. So Paul in Romans 10, for the sake of time, I won't expound, but he's talking about the gospel being accessible, that salvation is accessible, that we don't have to ascend down, descend down to the abyss to bring God up, to bring Christ up. We don't have to go up to heaven and bring Christ down. The word of God is near us and in our heart that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And by the way, If you've never believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. If you came in here this evening, maybe trusting in something else. Maybe not sure you're you're born again. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You take God at his word and you believe who Jesus is, who he says he is. And you place your trust upon him. And you can be saved tonight. But Christ is accessible. You don't have to go there or here or over there across land and sea. God has revealed himself. All he's going to reveal himself in this life is in this word. And he's revealed himself in the gospel. And he's accessible to anyone who believes. But he contrasts the accessibility of Christ in the gospel with those who've never heard. Christ is accessible. People who have never heard the gospel are not They're not easy to get to. Christ and the gospel was there. You could believe. It's through a message. But unreached people, people who've never heard, they're hard to get to. They're in the mountains. How beautiful are the feet of those who are on the mountains who travel and go and and are heralds of truth like the Chotskys. They deliver messages in the the remote parts of of the kingdom. Or they're in Spain. Paul's saying, I just got to go to Spain. Get me to Spain. They're way out there. And people must go to get to them. Some must go, but not all must go. So
Some are called to go. How do we know that God might be calling us to go? I won't elaborate on this, but point. But God calls those who go. He first gives them a strong burden for the work. As Paul said in Romans 1, he said he's under obligation. He, he, he has a burden and an eagerness to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. He says in, in Romans 15, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. So the first thing God does when he starts to call somebody, not just to missions, but to a certain work, he gives them a burden and a desire for the work. But then he also gives those who are called the gifts, spiritual gifts needed in order to do the work. Romans fifteen eighteen says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, and by the power of the Spirit of God. So how do you know God's calling you to serve and do something? Has He given you a desire for it? And has He given you the ability by His Spirit to do it? But what about those? Well, first off, why is it important that we always elevate going? Paul will tell us in Romans fifteen nineteen that from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So that's from Pensacola to Arizona. Paul's saying, I fulfilled my ministry. There's no more elbow room for me. My purpose is to take Christ where he's not been named to plant churches. Now it's the church's job to reach out to their areas. I'm going somewhere else where there's no work to be done. Never underestimate the importance of those who go. That's why we should hold up missions. Because look at the impact that one person can have. Look at this impact that this one man had. And, and honestly, you look at church history... Single women, missionaries with young families, single people, you name it, whoever they are, have made massive impacts on this world. So God could use you in your family. He could use you in this church. And he could use you mightily to do things that you don't even know. God could do many things to transform people's lives. People who go can transform villages, communities, and even nations. We're the result of missionaries. The Western civilization was built. The Western civilization, we say that, and we think, we think, we think a sophisticated culture. We think advanced. What was the Western culture before Christ was brought to them? A bunch of barbarians and Vikings killing each other and... and Worshipping idols. The gospel transforms. So we should highly, highly always keep missions forefront as a church. Because when the church moves and obeys, God could do much through them. He says that those who go and labor for the gospel, have beautiful feet. And they have beautiful feet not because they're not dirty. Not because they don't have blisters. It's hard to advance the gospel. It's hard to be the man that God's called you to be in your workplace. It's hard to be a witness in your family. Maybe you've got kids that you, you don't like the way maybe they're raising their children and you try to speak into it. Being a light for Christ can be hard. But God sees it as beautiful. So what about those who stay? Some are called to go. Not all are called to go. What about those who are called to stay? 
They do so by sending. God calls those who are called to stay to support those who are called to go. Paul tells us in Romans fifteen twenty two to 24 we learned that Romans was just his missionary support letter to the church of Rome. And it was a pretty dang good one. He says, this is the reason why I've often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I have no longer any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Paul's not trying to rally the troops to go with him to Spain. He's just saying, hey, I'm going to Spain. I want to come and enjoy some fellowship with you for a while. But then I I pray and I ask that you to Send me on my way. That that rocked me a little bit when I first learned that. Because I'd been told my whole life Paul was a tent maker. That he only supported his own way. And that was very true. But he had many books, many letters where Paul himself is calling on the church to give. He says in the, to the Philippian church in Philippians 4, 14 through 19. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Talk about a church being on the wrong side of history there. The great missionary Paul coming and they, nobody wanted to support him or help him, partner with him. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I see this is this is those who are truly called to the work. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. We learn so much about how to care for those who go. Being well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift that you sent, What does God think about it? A fragrant offering and acceptable to God. That's why we ultimately do it. That's why we obey. To give back to God what He's given to us. Whether it be singing, loving, forgiving, any act of obedience is an act of worship to God. Ultimately, that is what supporting those who go is worship to God. I will say when I learned that about the Apostle Paul, that he wasn't just a tent maker, that shattered me a little bit and turned my world upside down because I thought for some reason it was more spiritual to never mention anything about needs. I don't want to be try to be more spiritual than the Apostle Paul. But this really changed me. Well, I'll get to that first. Well, no, we're there. We think about Paul, but how about Jesus? Luke 8, 1 through 3 says, Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God, casting out demons, healing the sick, discipling leaders who would write the word of God, and turn the nations upside down, making disciples, making an impact. And it says, there are also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, married, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. That is amazing. You want to talk about, oh, look, there's, yes, there's Jesus 
Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Oh, the twelve. I'll never be a twelve disciple. I'll never be like Peter. I'll never be like Paul. But we can look at these women and just be utterly humbled. That they gave out of their means to the Son of God. That is amazing. You want to talk about the body of Christ working together. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely. The Bible says that those who support become sharers, co-partners in the work. Third John 5-8 through says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like this, that we may be fellow workers of the truth. That's the way God designed it. It's the one body. It's not, oh, look at those who go. They're the only ones doing anything. Look at these women who were saved by God and gave out of their means and made salvation available through their sacrifice to these people. And they, I'm so glad God put them there. When we give, it's a worship to God. It's sharing in that work. And it's used by God. Don't think, don't think, think faithfulness. Don't think amount. There's a song in the 90s. It was called Thank You for Giving to the Lord. It's about a man who had a dream. He went and he went to heaven and got to see the impact his life had and how being faithful in the small things how they had an eternal impact. It was called, Thank You for Giving to the Lord. He says, And then another man stood before you, another man in heaven came to him, and he said, Remember the time a missionary came to your church? His pictures made you cry. You didn't have much money, but you gave it anyway. Jesus took the gift you gave, and that's why I'm here today. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm so glad you gave. Listen, I, I'm just thankful you're here. This is the, the most, for me, in my mind, I'm hindered even sharing this. I just presented my ministry. I'm just happy you're here. I could care less whether you... I'm not trying to say this to get you to give to me. I'm trying to show you that if you obey this, God will use you mightily to whoever it is. What I love about that song is it not only conveys the biblical idea that when we're faithful, God uses it to change people's eternity. People will not be in hell because God's people give. That is amazing. Churches will be planted. Fellowships. People worshiping God who have broken homes but yet have been made whole. Children cared for. Do you realize, they step back and think of all the great things that have been done on this earth. People being educated. People being taught to read. Orphans being taken care of. Hospitals being built. Churches being planted. 
The gospel going forth. Nations being changed. Who did that? It was God's people. Living faithful lives. So when we obey in whatever area and how we're called, God could take that and He uses it for His eternal purposes. God is sovereign in salvation, but He has a means. He uses those who go. He uses real preaching. He uses real praying. He uses real giving. And He takes it and He uses it to accomplish His eternal purposes that He planned before the foundation of the world. But it not only teaches us that God uses it and it's worship, but is it really different for us than it is for the Susannas and Mary Magdalene who supported Jesus personally? Is there really any different? Even though Jesus is not here, we're not raising support for Jesus. Is that the way God divides giving? No, Jesus says he'll say to those On the great day, which you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. He will say, you gave a cup cup of cold water to someone in my name, not be forgotten. Not be forgotten. When we give to God's people, we give to Christ. So that's why giving is not a small thing. It ultimately supports We're giving to Christ Himself. And it's not just for missions. It's for the person in need in your church. It's the person who's going through a dark time. They're in the hospital. And they need some emotional support. Maybe you go and you read some Bible verses to them and you go to give them hope. Who are you ultimately serving and blessing? You're blessing that person. But Jesus will say to you one day, day, Thank you for coming to me when I was in the hospital. Thank you. Thank you for calling me when I was discouraged. Thank you for feeding me when I was hungry. For clothing me when I was naked. Church, what we do for the least of these things, we do for Him. So much could be said about that. The church engages the unreach of the world, working together by going, by sending... And by praying. Those who are called to stay are called to pray. We can get even more Baptists. Those who are called to stay are called to pay. Those who are called to stay are called to pray. Scripture, if we looked at the whole Bible from beginning to end, you will see this sovereign, wise God using the prayers of His people to advance His purposes. I challenge you to just find stories, amazing stories of God answering prayer. You see in the Bible that we're called to pray to advance the work of God. We're called to pray for those who go. There are different ways we're called to pray. We could, time would tell, I mean, we have the scripture of so many stories of God advancing his global purposes, his eternal purposes through his people's prayer. But. History has even told us such things. I mean, we could talk about Jim Elliott, who was one of the four martyrs, one of the first American martyrs in the 50s. People always look to him. To me, he's a hero for that. But to me, what makes him a hero in my book is when he was in college, he started a prayer chain at Wheaton College. 
a 24-hour prayer chain where people would sign up their name. 15 minutes a day. And they had a 24-hour rotation. You know, long, long, long after he had been gone, some of the original people who were there were in a conference, a missions conference in Switzerland, and said, man, you remember those prayer times? Man, those were some sweet times. I wonder, I wonder how God used it. The other brother said, well, I actually kept in contact with the alumni office. And I still pray through the students. That graduating class. Guess how many missionaries God called during that 24-hour prayer time? Guess. 500. 500 of those students. We could talk about the modern missionary movement. And that's, that's not to even include the amount of people who were inspired by his death. Thousands. We could talk about the modern missionary movement within the past few hundred years that were started by a few young men praying in a haystack in a rainstorm. I mean, you want to talk about civilizations changed. You could talk about John Knox, the great Scottish reformer, who Queen Mary said that she, she feared his prayers more than all the armies of Europe. What did he pray? God, give me Scotland or I'll die. I love the Scots. They're just so fiery. Give me Scotland or I'll die. Imagine someone in this prayer, in this church in a prayer meeting. God, give me America or I will die. Burdened about it. We'd probably laugh at him. Did God answer his prayer? God gave him Scotland. God used that man to bring reformation from the pagan Catholic church. We could talk about Hudson Taylor. We talk about Hudson Taylor coming back from his missionary journey, burdened to bring and take more laborers back with him. But he knew, he knew if he prayed, God would give it to him. But he was afraid because he was like, what if God answers my prayers and then I'm in charge and I fail? That's a real prayer. Hey, I love looking back on the life of saints and saying, hey, God sustained them. God's with us. That's another sermon. He shares a story about he's on a beach and everybody's singing in church and all he could think about is a million to hell, a million in China every month to hell. And he goes and walks on the beach and there God conquered his unbelief and he surrendered. He knew that if it was God's work, God would, would provide the strength for him as well as the means. And so he goes and he writes out a, a missions pamphlet and sends it out, hoping that God would send back to him for China 24 people, two for every providence of China, including Mongolia, I think, and there was another country. Um, he got a letter back from a man who sent a check of $500, which back then that was a lot of money. And he said, dear brother, his letter was written in it. Dear brother, enlarge your desires. Ask for a hundred laborers and the Lord will give it to you. Ask a hundred, brother. I mean, what is he saying? Brother, pray like God's promises are true. Do we really believe that? I mean, I'm checking myself here. If we ask 
anything according to His will. It will be done. Jesus tells us in our daily prayers, the very first thing before we're praying for our sins to be forgiven, before we're praying for our daily bread, He's saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pretty much what He's praying is teaching us to pray is, God, let Your name be glorified by bringing Your global purposes that You set forth before the foundation of the earth to be completed, Lord. Take the gospel, God. Take your glory to the furthest parts of the world. Be worshipped, God, by those whom you have called from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Bring it to completion, Lord. Bring Revelation 20 and 21, Lord. God hears those prayers. Hudson Taylor would later on in life ask for that 100. God gave him 103 that year. And to this day, it's over 100 years old. There are 1,600 missionaries now who are missionaries through that mission. So prayer works. Your prayers works. Prayer is the means that God uses to advance the kingdom of God. Prayer is not only does that, but prayer also strengthens those who go. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to drive, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. It's the churches back home, it's the churches back home prayers that keeps people's marriages together overseas. It's the churches' prayers back home that opens up opportunities for the gospel to go forth. It's the prayers back home of the people that creates the endurance and the encouragement. I've had people through the worst times in my life who barely knew me tell me that they woke up at 3 a.m. praying for me on their face. And I said, I'm sure glad you did that because that was a really hard week. God, that's what God does. God uses his people to pray for his people. Prayer is a means that God keeps people going, that keeps them in the faith, that keeps them going in the ministry, that keeps their marriages strong. Your prayers could be the prayers that save people on the field's children. Your prayers can create a spirit of God to move in the ministry. You name it. That's the way God has ordained the body to work. So when God's people go, when God's people give, and when God's people pray, they as one body unlock the prisoner's door and sets prisoners free forever. Let's pray. Dear Father God, Lord, I'm just humbled. Lord, I'm humbled by everyone sitting here. I'm humbled by by their faith. Lord, I'm humbled by their love. And I'm just humbled by their um, humility to just come and just to be an emotional support to our family. And I thank you for them. Bless this church, God. Bless Trinity Church. Bless Defuniac, God. I just pray for you to get so much glory in the lives of your people in this church. I just pray, God, that you would help them to just walk with you daily and to live lives changed by the gospel and growing in the Lord. May the joy of the Lord be their strength. In Jesus' name, amen.